Welcome to New Testament Topics with Brother Elliot Maloney, a Benedictine monk and professor of New Testament Studies at St. Vincent Seminary, Latrobe, Pennsylvania. Hello, this is Brother Elliot. Today I'd like to speak about the parable of the prodigal son, as it's usually known, but I think we're going to find that we should call it by a more common designation the, these days, um, the parable of the father and two sons. This parable, of course, is so well known that it's almost impossible to say anything new about it. If we go back to the basics of what a parable of Jesus is supposed to do, we can see that it will bring us a better interpretation of the story, a fuller interpretation, help us today to understand what Jesus was trying to say so many years ago. This parable, like all parables, is about the kingdom of God. We all aspire to this as believing Christians, and God wants us to co-create with God this kingdom by channeling the power of God's Son, Jesus Christ, in every aspect of our lives. And the parables tell us how to do that. The kingdom of God is the fundamental and all-inclusive teaching of Jesus on the nature of God and on God's way of interacting with us, God's plan for us. God is always present to us, but not always in the way we want God to be, and never in a way that we can control. So let's see what God can reveal to us in this meditation, in this perhaps the most famous of all the parables. Well, a parable, of course, is a story. It's a narrative about everyday life, the parables of Jesus. It's not a fable or a fantasy with talking animals or animated objects like magic brooms or something like that. You know, the sorcerer's apprentice uh, uh, from Walt Disney. No, the basics of a plot of a parable are always well-known realities of household or farm or family, business, societal interactions. The exact situation of the parable depicts, the exact situation the parable depicts must be clearly presented and understood by the audience or, or they wouldn't get the message, see? Otherwise, the twist that Jesus always adds in the story would be unrecognizable. You wouldn't quite get it. See, the point of Jesus telling the parable then would be lost. Okay, the very first line of our narrative, our parable, sets up the story. In our, it's in chapter 15 of Luke, verses 11 to uh, 32. It's a pretty long one. 
the younger son in verse 12, after the parable begins, a man had two sons. The younger son, verse 12, I said to his father, Father, give me the share of your estate that should come to me. Well, the story lets us know that the family had some considerable wealth. But here we have the younger son wants to take his inheritance and move out. Okay, what happens next is told succinctly and without flourish. Verse 13, quote, He set off to a distant country where he squandered his inheritance on a life of dissipation. Now, that would be a good opportunity for a nice juicy story about what the kid did, but it doesn't mention that. It just simply gives us the point. We have to look at the legality of this action. It's somewhat debated, but the possibility of a father allowing a son to have control of the inheritance before the father dies is possible because the book of Sirach which is a biblical book, uh, warns against such a thing. Listen to what it says. To son or wife, brother or friend, do not give power over yourself as long as you live, and do not give property to another lest you change your mind and have to ask for it back. While you are still alive and have breath in you, do not let anyone take your place. Bring no stain upon your honor at the time when you end the days of your life and the hour of your death, then distribute your inheritance. Good old wisdom from the book of Sirach. Well, the rabbis too, later of course, decry as foolish and reprehensible, quote, the one who transfers his property to his children during his lifetime. So, it was one thing to make clear the inheritances in one's will to apportion the share, but quite another to allow the disposition of it, putting the family's financial integrity, and remember in the ancient world, that would mean the honor, that very, very important thing, Putting financial jeopardy in online is putting the honor online for jeopardy, for trouble, for shame. Now, we have to remember we're dealing here with a society that fears dishonor much more than it worries about guilt or feeling guilt. It's dishonor. It's shame. The father has set himself up now in this story to lose control of his wealth. Oh, yes. Losing his ability to support his family. And don't forget now, in this story, we're talking about the father and the two sons, but we've got a wife and daughters probably who aren't even mentioned, and they have to be taken care of as well. The degree of shame the father will receive when his son blows the inheritance, when his son dissipates 
what is supposed to be for the father and the security of the family, the shame will be terrible. For the son has acted as if the father were already dead. <laughs> yeah. Now, at the same time, there's another very subtle program running in the background. All through the Old Testament, there is a recurrent theme of God choosing the younger sibling over the elder, right? Think of Abel over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, Rebekah over Leah, the two wives of Jacob, Jacob over Esau, his ruddy brother, Joseph, the little wimp with the coat of many colors, Joseph over all his brothers. And then Benjamin takes over when Jacob was thought that Joseph was dead. David over his seven brothers. Solomon over the many sons that David had sired before him. Look at all those examples. So the story begins with the audience expecting the younger brother to be something of a rascal, and yet at the same time, his father's favorite. It is this tension at the very beginning of the story, says expert commentator Brandon Scott, it is this tension that is precisely what makes it so magnificent and so difficult to interpret. Now, in our close reading of this parable in Luke chapter 15, we should notice that the younger son departs from home only after many days and after he had gathered everything together. Oh, yeah, it took some time for him. He wanted the last harvest of the crops. He wanted to liquidate his assets so he could take everything with him, not leaving any of it for the upkeep of the family. So although we are biblically conditioned, or our reading of the Bible wants us to expect that the young son would do well when he struck out for the family, do well for the family with his new resources, here's where Jesus pulls the switch. The young son loses it all in one sentence and by living dissolutely. That, that Greek used there is, a, is an adverb, asotos. It means incurable. It means uh, without, 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 uh, without any saving possibility, leading to destruction. Well, now Jesus, the great storyteller that he is, describes the utter degradation of the son by having him become a pig farm attendant. Something completely abhorrent to a Jew, of course. And explicitly tending pigs, cursed and forbidden in the Jewish Talmud later, of course, but still. Uh, their thinking. The only reason, the story says, he doesn't eat the pig's fodder 
of carob pods, something evidently pretty awful if pigs like it. The only reason he doesn't eat is because he can't give, get anybody to give him any. Oh, what a story. This story is going to crash if something good doesn't happen soon. Okay, the young man comes to himself. That's what the text says. He comes to himself. It doesn't say he repented. It was his wish to keep on living that made him so inventive. Now he knows his father's a good person. Okay, so he says to himself, I can beg my father to let me sleep in the barn and work and eat as one of his hired workers. That's what I'll do. So, well, this is hardly the way a usual biblical story restores the fortunes of the younger sibling. The younger sibling usually becomes the hero by some clever or brave action, like slaying Goliath, as David did, or becoming Pharaoh's great assistant ruler, as Joseph does in Egypt. No, no, no. This narrative has to rely on the actions of a wonderful father who does a turnaround absolutely unprecedented for a Middle Eastern patriarch who had been shamed by his son. When he saw his son, he was filled with compassion. Worse yet, he acted like a woman. He acted like a mother would. He ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. Very improper for a Mideastern patriarch. Now, we don't know if the son is being sincere or not when he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father doesn't test him on that. He obviously doesn't care about that, not for a minute. He clothes him as the guest of honor with new garments. He gives him a golden ring and starts a festival. The father has forgiven the son, showing him mercy, not grudgingly, not grudgingly, but with great joy. We even expect that the son will be returned to favored status and given an inheritance once again. But that's not what happens. So everyone goes to the feast, the father, the son, the servants, the audience for listening to the story, everybody's relieved and identifying with the Father's joy. Everybody except one person. The story now shifts to the other son, the elder son, whom we expect to be quite miffed by all of this, and he does not disappoint. The fact that he asks a servant what was going on is significant. Of course, he already knew exactly what was going on. 
Even though he was far away from the father in the fields, he was the number one son in an important family. Do you think such a man wouldn't have people who would alert him to anything going on at the big house? No, the distance in the story is a metaphor for their relationship, the elder son to the father, for that son complains that all he does is slave for the father, never getting a party or even a special barbecue just for him and his friends. The son tries to put the blame on his father when he calls his brother that son of yours, completely opting out of his duty to love and respect his younger sibling. He'll have nothing to do with celebrating the return of one whom he considers a rival and perhaps a threat to his own inheritance. Does he think that the father will re-inherit the prodigal son and give him another part of the inheritance that should really be the elder son's? The story never says that. The father, meanwhile, dishonors himself again by going out of the house to the elder son. The elder son has adamantly refused to come into the house. His anger at his father for allowing the disposal of the inheritance is put further over the edge by the welcome that the profligate received from the father. He sees himself, the elder brother does, as the victim in all this. He's the one who remained completely faithful to his father and dependent upon him. He has watched his brother disgrace the family as a depraved and indecent playboy who was concerned only for himself. Contrast this opinion with the father, who thinks that everyone should be celebrating the finding of the younger son who was so lost. Look, now, let's examine this difference of opinion. It is the elder son who is thinking about only himself now. His selfishness turns into self-righteousness that always comes along with some hatred for anyone not like me. What the father says next surprises the listener. He calls the resentful elder son, my child, a term of endearment, every bit the equal of the father's embracing and kissing of the prodigal son earlier in the story. Here, the father shows great concern for the elder son and explains that he has always considered him a special companion, an actual co-owner of the estate. When the father says, you are always with me and everything that is mine is yours. The son in his small-mindedness has made himself a slave of the property that was already his. He was so caught up in himself that he couldn't perceive that the father 
always cared for him and treated him constantly with generosity. Every party the father gave honored his son because every household party was also his party. We are left at the end of the story not knowing whether the elder brother will enter into the festivities or not. What would you do? The father has dishonored himself by dropping all pretense that he would act according to what law and custom would demand. He even stopped addressing his sons as huyoi, sons in Greek, son and legal heir, and he reverts to technon, the affectionate word, my child. Would you do that? This story is about compassion. As to the self-righteous son, the father was bending over backwards in love for him to try to get him to reconcile with his brother. Was the father wrong to dishonor himself and the whole family by not punishing the prodigal? After all, the rascal did admit his guilt, and he never asked to be reinstated, reinherited. Did the father not demean himself by showering him with affection and a joyous celebration? Is there any way you could say that the father was right, that he acted correctly? Maybe the kingdom is not so much about being right. Maybe it's more about compassion that leads to reconciliation, the reuniting of the broken with the God they fear but do not know how to love. When we act like the Father in this Christ-like way, we show who God really is. And at the same time, we experience the living Christ at work in us and affecting a reaction in turn with those to whom we turn in love. I think that the high point of our experience with the Lord our mystical union with Jesus Christ is this interaction and communication to us by those for whom we become Christ. St. Paul says, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. This is Brother Elliot Maloney. Thanks for listening in today. See you again on New Testament Topics with Brother Elliot.